This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. The Sunday morning before the presidential inauguration, to be precise. We'll be looking ahead to Friday's ceremony throughout the morning, while also taking a look back with Martha Teichner at the record of outgoing President Barack Obama. Then it's on to the high school student who will be raising her voice in song at the inauguration. Michelle Miller has paid her a visit. If you've never heard 16-year-old Jackie Ivanko sing, prepare to be amazed. For her, singing the national anthem this Friday will be easy. The hard part is dealing with those who say she shouldn't sing at all, out of concern for the rights of people like her sister. My sister Juliet is a transgender, and she is one of the strongest people I know. Jackie Avenko raising her voice in our nation's capital later on Sunday morning. Viola Davis is an acclaimed Hollywood actress. 
who knows full well that success can never be taken for granted. Lee Cowan will have our Sunday profile. Viola Davis has learned that in Hollywood, praise doesn't always last. They love, love, love you, Viola. I mean, I would just grab hold of that word love until I realized <laughs> after my first nomination, I said, okay, it's been three months and I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> she did, of course, get another job. And this one may again have her in line for an Oscar. Viola Davis, ahead on Sunday morning. The small world that's one well-known woman's personal hobby is actually a window into her larger and complex past. Chip Reed has her story. I want to tell you something. When you look at that bed, you know what I'm thinking about. At 88 years old, sex therapist Dr. Ruth Westheimer is passionate about a lot of things. But her true love... Do you have a favorite dollhouse? No, I don't want to play favorites. Parents shouldn't play favorites. <laughs> Dr. Ruth and her dollhouses. Come join us later on Sunday morning. Well done. All right. <laughs> That's a wrap. With Rita Braver, we admire inaugural gowns of the past. Faith Saley talks with outgoing Army Secretary Eric Fanning. Mo Rocca takes us inside the chapel where George Washington prayed after the first inaugural and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Five days before the inauguration of Donald Trump as our 45th president, we take a look back at our 44th president, Barack Obama. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. Because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. It was a moment that seemed to hold so much promise, such optimism. And where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Barack Obama facing that sea of supporters in Chicago on November 4th, 2008, after being elected our first African-American president. What began that night is ending now. The assessment of the Obama legacy already underway. I think that moment, that Grant Park moment, will be remembered symbolically in history as a moment when America thought, we've done something and we feel good about that. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. In history, we always talk about, is it the man or is it the times that makes for a presidential legacy? And that moment in Grant Park, it seemed like the man was even bigger than the times. Are you prepared to take the oath, Senator? I am. But the Times set the agenda from day one. As soon as Barack Obama took the oath of office, he inherited the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. The big banks and GM and Chrysler were teetering. Unemployment was pushing 8%. It's easy to forget how scary it was. Now unemployment is just over 4.5%. 
Since early 2010, more than 15 million jobs have been created. By most accounts, a big check in the plus column of the Obama legacy tally. It's a huge achievement to save the economy. It's not something that's just a statistical thing you've done. You've affected people's lives and affected their futures. And that is real. Some practice with this, but not as much as I'd like. <laughs> For President Obama, virtually every accomplishment was a struggle. He was blindsided by the partisan ugliness of the opening battles, as he told our Lee Cowan a year ago. In those early months, my expectation was is that uh, we could pull uh, uh, the parties together a little more effectively. In 2010, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell defined what Democrats call Republican obstructionism. Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. Not one Republican in either the House or the Senate voted for the Affordable Care Act, what came to be known as Obamacare. The president wanted his signature expansion of health care insurance to be the biggest check in his legacy plus column. But Republicans are already dismantling it. What about President Obama's foreign policy legacy? Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. The killing of bin Laden? Definitely a plus. The way he pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, the Iran nuclear deal, the now dead-on-arrival Trans-Pacific Partnership, claimed by the administration as pluses, by his critics, not so much. And his handling of Syria, according to many policy experts, a big check in the minus column. I would argue that the decision not to make good on the American threat on Syrian use of chemical weapons was the single biggest flaw and mistake of Barack Obama's uh, presidency. Richard Haas is president of the nonpartisan Council on Foreign Relations in New York. This sent a message to our friends and our allies who are inherently dependent on us that we could not be counted on. And I think he had a, a view of the world that it would somehow sort itself out just fine even if the United States made the decision to do a lot less. And that's simply wrong. What we've learned, particularly in the Middle East, but also elsewhere, is if the United States dials down, benign forces don't fill the space. Now, I've lived long enough to know that race relations are better than they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, no matter what some folks say. Which brings us to what may be President Obama's most provocative legacy. He changed the conversation about the nation's social issues. The idea that people now talk about systemic racism, systemic bias, that it showed up on the campaign trail, that's new. Charles Blow is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. The idea that it bubbles to the top while he is president is a real thing that can't be undone. You can't, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Now that is at the top on the surface. Now we have to deal with that. 
Just this past Friday, Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced the results of a 13-month investigation of the Chicago Police Department. ...in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. For Chicago, substitute Ferguson. Baltimore. Cleveland to name some of the cities whose police practices have been scrutinized. And that is him. That is the influence that he is having on our discussion. And that comes to the front during the Obama years. Now consider this. Strangely enough, it's not really uh, him being African-American, I think, that, that is most remarkable of his eight years. It is the incredible movement on issues like uh, same-sex marriage and kind of gay rights and inclusion. It, it, it has been the um, civil rights mo movement of our time, and it has changed over his tenure more than at any other time in American history. But what has also changed in Obama's eight years, devastating Democratic Party losses at the polls have left Republicans firmly in charge a big minus that will have an impact on his legacy. Still, for historians, how a president is judged changes over time. When you think about Harry Truman having left the presidency with such a low level of approval rating, and yet now being considered one of the near great presidents, and you think about President Johnson having left the presidency with such sadness, feeling like the Vietnam War was the scar forever on his legacy, there's no question that domestically he did far more than we realized at the time. Do you think history will be kind to President Obama's presidency? I do. The symbolism of President Obama's legacy can't be ignored. The image of this particular first family. Amazing <laughs> Of a president who sang his heart out over the killings in that Charleston church. And we watched as hope grew, and in two and two, for the office of the president, uh-oh, guess who? Barack Hussein Obama. Of a White House that was hip for a change. Do you believe that symbolism is equal in value as legislative achievement. I think absolutely. You know, I believe in image. I believe in representation. I believe that it is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. I have three kids who have grown up and they have never known anything but a black president. I mean, their consciousness about a president begins with him. I'm asking you to hold fast to that faith written into our founding documents. It is with symbolism in mind that President Barack Obama returned to Chicago, where it all began, to say goodbye and to consign his presidency to history. A creed at the core of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can. Yes, we did. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. May God continue to bless the United States of America. Up next. Not only does he have an amazing eye, but 
He's also become a great friend and somebody I trust. He made history, too. President Obama is leaving behind a photo album with many a close-up of his White House years, all thanks to the man our correspondent emeritus, Bill Plant, has been talking with. Over the past eight years, Chief White House photographer Pete Souza has taken as many as 2,000 pictures a day of President Obama, some recording singular events in the nation's history, and some simply capturing a moment. On Halloween a few years ago, this was the uh, son of a staffer, and as he was leaving, he said, zap me in your web. And one of the things that I'm just trying to do is show him, not just as a president, but as a human being. What's he like as a man? In 2005, Souza was working for the Chicago Tribune when he began taking pictures of Barack Obama, then a new senator from Illinois. I loved his pictures. Not only does he have an amazing eye, not only are his pictures evocative, accurate, creative, but he's also become a great friend and somebody I trust. Souza took this photo in 2007 as Obama was about to announce his candidacy for president. He's about to walk out, and his life is never going to be the same. And in 2009, the new president offered Pete Souza the job of White House photographer, a job he'd had before during Ronald Reagan's presidency. I never aspired to do this again, but the opportunity presented itself. That usually meant a long day of shadowing the president, whether at the arrival of the Italian prime minister for an official visit, in the Oval Office as Mr. Obama made phone calls, or watching Mr. Obama and his wife pass out treats on Halloween. Uh, I basically go in whenever I want and stay in as long as I want. And the president had no problem with that. He understands how to get his shot without being obtrusive. But now it's about to end. It's been an extraordinary gift because I have the kind of chronicle of my girls growing up that very few people have. And, says Mr. Obama, Souza has also taken some iconic photographs. Watching to see if the bin Laden operation was going to be successful. You could feel the tension in that room. And my job was to not disturb the moment, yet try to capture visually what was taking place. End of less solemn moments. The little boy touching my head. The president bent down, and Jacob touched his head to feel his head. When staff members brought their children to the White House, there was sometimes a presidential visit. I was in disbelief that the President of the United States was lying down in the Oval Office. How do you decide when it's appropriate to intrude on a president? It's more intuition than it is anything. But there's certain times when you know, okay, let's, let's give him some space. But Sousa always had to be ready, as when the first couple briefly held hands during the commemoration of the Civil Rights March from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. When it first happened, I was out of position. So I kind of literally ran to line up my composition and clicked a couple of frames, and then their hands let go. Or when the president, in a museum, impulsively boarded the bus which had carried Rosa Parks the day she sat in the whites-only section. Just the one frame of him looking out the window, it evokes the past in a lot of ways. To preserve the here and now meant understanding his subject and anticipating movements. You have to be ready, and I think that's sort of like what keeps you on your toes. Because like that, it's like, boom, it happens, and then it's gone. 
When a friend told Sousa that after eight years he'd made every picture he could possibly make, he almost conceded her point. But just a few days later, at the opening of the new African-American Museum... I made two photographs that I'm still proud of to this day. The vice president was kneeling down, talking to the daughter of a slave. And literally, like 30 seconds later, President Bush handed President Obama a smartphone and asked him to take a picture of him with a group of people. On January 20th, one of the pictures that he takes yeah. is going to be the last picture of you as president. Yeah. What do you hope it captures? I hope he captures my wave as uh, I have a big grin and I say, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> That's a sentiment Bill Plant can probably share. As you may already have heard, he's just retired after 52 years with CBS News. That included service as White House correspondent under four presidents, not to mention many stories for Sunday morning. Thank you, Bill. All the best. Time now for a final salute to a departing member of the Pentagon, civilian leadership. Eric Fanning is leaving the post of Secretary of the Army. He's also leaving behind a unique legacy. Faith Saley conducts our exit interview. You had a parade. Yeah. Who gets a parade? I did. <laughs> uh, Secretary of the Army do. You know, traditions are very important in the Army. Indeed, this welcome ceremony was traditional. But the man it honored is not. Mr. Secretary-in-Chief, thank you. Eric Fanning, the outgoing Secretary of the Army, is also the first openly gay Secretary of the Army. It seems like ancient history now, but Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in existence when, when this president was sworn in. The repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy of dealing with gays in the military came just five years before Fanning's appointment. Still, even before that, Fanning held high-level civilian jobs in all three branches of the military, Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy, Undersecretary of the Air Force, and Undersecretary of the Army. It's interesting to me that you have been in service to the military for decades and that you never served in the military. We have an important tradition in this country, um, constitutional tradition as it is, of civilian control of the military. So but the military should not be in control of the military? That's a very important part of what's made this country such a secure, successful democracy over all these many years. While the generals manage the combat side of the army, 48-year-old Fanning has run the business side. I'm the CEO. My job is to recruit, train, equip, uh, and then take, take care of the morale and welfare of soldiers and their families and our civilian workforce. And ultimately, I'm responsible for the behavior of all of those soldiers, and so I am paying attention to make sure that they're representing well, and in almost all cases, they are. How do you look at the morale of our soldiers and watch their behavior? A, a lot of it's interaction. It's, this is from the Civil War. This is what's Fanning should know. He comes from a military family. Three of his uncles had careers in the armed services. Did you think you were going to be in the military when you were a kid? It's something you think about when you grow up in that environment. Your uncles talk to you about it. You weren't allowed to serve in the military if you were gay. A number of people serve, and they, they make the choice to serve, serve in silence. Uh, I just didn't think that that was going to work for me. 
How did you come out to your uncles who are in the military? I don't know that there was a specific coming out moment for me with the uncles. They found out and they've been great. The Honorable Eric K. Fanning, sir, thank you for being here. During his relatively short tenure, Secretary Fanning made 31 trips to Army installations around the globe, like this one in Oahu. This is an incredibly large organization. And, and, and so hierarchical. With, very with hierarchical. Tradition. Yeah. And you don't make very informed decisions at this level if you don't have that input from all the different levels. In fact, Fanning says he's found that his appointment, it took months for him to receive Senate confirmation, was ultimately embraced by all kinds of Army personnel. How do you reconcile the old Army with this new army where there are older soldiers welcoming you so warmly. It is different now, not just in the army, it's different in the United States of America because people see the sun still comes up, the car still starts, the dog still needs to be fed or what have you. Nothing changed today because my neighbor, my son, my shipmate, whatever it is, came out. In part because of that belief, under Fanning's watch, the Army has become more inclusive with women and transgender soldiers serving in combat roles. And as his final directive as secretary, Fanning has issued grooming and dress waivers to Sikhs and Muslims for religious reasons. What drives me personally is the view that the more the Army looks like society and the more voices we can bring in, the stronger that we're going to be. Do you think your being gay made you want to really focus on inclusivity and diversity in the Army? Absolutely. I know from my own personal experience how important it is to see someone that you can identify with in a leadership position so that you can see yourself in that position. Do you think that your commitment to diversity in the Army uh, will be continued in a new administration? Uh, I don't know. But I do know that it's one thing to have a conversation about whether or not someone should be allowed to put on the uniform. It's a very different conversation to say someone should no longer be able to serve. That's a harder conversation to have. Progress is never completely linear, but it is hard to walk back on some of these things. He's always been himself, never had to hide who he was. Ben Masri Cohen, who works at the National Gallery in Washington, is Fanning's partner. <laughs> She's going to be the real star of all of this. They say their ability to weather storms helps make their relationship work. You guys went through a confirmation process. Yeah. You're tighter than ever. So, so do you think there might be a wedding? <laughs> oh my gosh! Look, things are things yeah. are going great. I yeah. love them very much. I think we're in a great place right now. Things will only get better. Yeah. I can't believe it's only Tuesday. Later this week, Secretary Fanning really will leave his office at the Pentagon one last time. And just as they welcomed him with tradition, they'll say goodbye with one. Yeah, I'll have my farewell ceremony and then the, the clapping out where they line the hallways and the stairwell as you leave for the last time. Uh, so that'll be the 18th. You going to cry? Yeah, I, I'm sure I'll be emotional. I mean, I'm emotional about uh, a lot of things right now because it's, a, it's an incredibly re rewarding experience. And so it'll, it'll be hard to leave, and I'm moving on. It'll be good for me, uh, and we'll figure out what that means in due course. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. What sort of legacy is First Lady Michelle Obama leaving behind? Thoughts on that now from Robin Givon of The Washington Post. 
Among many things, Michelle Obama was good for fashion. She was adventurous in her choices and willing to embrace Hollywood glamour, not just the staid traditions of the First Lady. Fashion helped her tell a complex story about the historical nature of her role, the initiatives she championed, and the legacy she would leave behind. Mrs. Obama entered the White House bearing the weight of expectation and suspicion. She was the presidential spouse who critics called aggrieved. She was the Harvard lawyer from whom feminists expected groundbreaking achievements. And she was an accomplished black woman whose visibility might allow others like her to at long last be seen. Over eight years, Mrs. Obama made some, but not all, of her opinions known, with considered remarks as well as judicious silence. She used her bully pulpit to fight childhood obesity, and her signature style, those sleeveless dresses, served as a motivation for many women who saw beauty, health, femininity, and power in her sculpted arms. Supporting military families was another priority. She reminded Americans that veterans aren't just fallen heroes. They're regular folks whose daily struggles are the same as ours. Over time, Mrs. Obama evolved from White House star into pop culture celebrity. This was not coincidence or happenstance. Our society often puts more stock in the words of celebrities than those of politicians. Celebrities, after all, have friends, followers, and fans. They're able to create intimate bonds with strangers while deftly controlling their image. And her image has been subject to few nicks or scratches along the way. So how do you measure whether Mrs. Obama's tenure has been successful? Some 65% of Americans view her favorably. There's evidence that childhood obesity is, if not declining, hitting a plateau. And fashion designers can point to discrete upticks in sales thanks to her. Many people have been inspired. Being your first lady has been the greatest honor of my life. And I hope I've made you proud. Thank you. But the most memorable headline about Michelle Obama is both profound and a little bit disheartening. An African-American woman did this. She did it with dignity and heart. And for many people, that came as an enormous surprise. Beautifully dressed ahead. Small wonders. Is a dollhouse simply a small world, a plaything to be outgrown over time? Not for the woman Chip Reed is taking us to visit. Look at the beautiful embroidery. Every day a little bit I play. You do? What do yes. you do? I just move them around. You might be surprised to learn that at 88 years old, well-known sex therapist Dr. Ruth Westheimer still plays with dollhouses. This is a big dollhouse. Taller than me. Taller than See you. That? Not by much, but by these, right? <laughs> she started collecting them long before the days when she was giving blunt advice on a topic many considered taboo. The world is snuggling. You know what that is? Mm -hmm. That is just hugging and kissing. These books about sex. In this house, there are miniature versions of some of her books on sex, but don't get any ideas. Now, there's no sex in these dollhouses, is there? They don't do it. They don't have sex. Okay. Good. No, I don't want them to have sex. I will have sex myself. <laughs> oh, I've had sex. <laughs> I have never had the dollhouses having sex. In fact, her obsession with dolls is not just innocent. 
it's heartbreaking. It started when she was 10 years old in Germany when the Nazis came knocking. They came in with shiny black boots, very scary. They didn't shout. They just told my father to get dressed to go with them. My grandmother had in the seam of her long skirt, she had some money. I can see it in front of my eyes right now when I talk to you. She took the money out, she gave it to the Nazi, and she said, take good care of my son. Wow. This dress then makes you think of the Nazis taking your father away. Absolutely. Her desperate mother put Ruth on a train to Switzerland to escape the Holocaust. She grew up in an orphanage and never saw or heard from her parents again. Another girl and on the train was crying. She was younger than me. I had one doll with me. They only permitted me one doll. I gave that doll to that girl. That's all you and, had. And that's all I had because she was crying. She needed the doll more than me. And so began her fascination with dolls and doll houses. If I have to choose one reason why I have them, is that they're all happy in their surroundings. So inside these dollhouses is a kind of safety and stability that you did not have as a child. That's right. Beautiful setup. She's not just captivated by her own collection. Recently, Dr. Ruth visited Small Stories, an exhibit at the National Building Museum in Washington. On loan from London, it features 300 years of dollhouses. So this is a snapshot of life in 1942. Alice Sage is the curator. They become symbols of your own identity and of your relationships with others. Each one is a window into history. Three centuries ago, they were status symbols for the wealthy. If we look at the Joy wardrobe, which is in fact not a doll's house but a wardrobe, you can see the influence of 17th century Dutch architecture very clearly on the facade with big scrolls and beautiful stained glass windows. This house from 1890 shows the evolution of technology. It has a telephone and a bath with hot running water, exotic novelties at the time. Others tell much darker stories. This one evokes a young girl's fear as she prepares for an air raid during World War II. Those are gas masks in a box on the floor. She had a very hard time when she was evacuated, and it was a way for her to work through those memories of the war. This was therapy for her. Absolutely. But while many of these miniature architectural wonders focus on bygone eras, the museum commissioned modern designers to let their futuristic imaginations run wild. It is a bit of a scary dream house. It is a bit of a nightmare house. <laughs> Wendy Evans-Joseph titled her Doll House an ordinary evening with nightmarish monsters surrounding a child's bedroom. From beautiful to therapeutic to frivolous fun, doll houses appeal to the voyeur in all of us. That one thing in my life that even at the age of 88 I can say that has to be constant, that nobody can touch. They are just yours. They're just mine, not for my grandchildren. You can look at them, but you can't take them with you. I need you to remember everything I told you, okay? Coming up, Viola Davis speaks her mind.
When you're poor, you are invisible. And still no silver. Maybe I can't send you to jail for what you wrote, but I can send you for being a thief. I know something about you, don't you forget that. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Viola Davis won an Oscar nomination for her performance in the 2011 film, The Help. And there's already Oscar talk this year about her role in the movie Fences. Lee Cowan has a Sunday profile. It's like I played the doctor, I, I played the lawyer, I played all those roles, but you didn't know who I was. And that was getting tiresome. And you know why? The thing about it is you could create the most specific emotional life for a character, but nobody sees it if you don't have the words. It's like having a great body and being in a burlap set. <laughs> Viola Davis has found her words in the words of August Wilson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright whose most popular work, Fences, just went from stage to screen. Hush your mouth. That's your daddy you talking about. I don't want to hear that kind of talk this morning. The story is set in 1950s Pittsburgh. Davis plays the long-suffering wife of Troy Maxson, portrayed by the film's director, Denzel Washington. Ain't nobody gonna hold his hand when he get out there in the world. Times have changed, Troy. People change. She is the glue that holds this family together through racism and infidelity and more. A performance that has already earned her a golden globe. Davis and Washington both won Tony Awards for the same roles on Broadway. But adapting this story to film was a tricky thing. I always feel that people want to problem solve once the play goes to the screen. So the fear in not making it stagey and making it a cinematic experience, what you do is sometimes you can reduce the impact of it. The film pulls no punches. It's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years. Well, I've been standing with you. I've been right here with you, Troy. I got a life too. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. When people come into the theater, whether it's the screen or the stage, they've got to be transported and transformed. The thing Viola can't do is be invisible. She just can't do it. She can't fade away. She can't recede. She can't be forgettable. You know you've made it when actress Meryl Streep sings your praises, as she did on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, where Viola Davis recently got her star. The two first appeared together in the film Doubt. If we're talking about something floating around between this priest and my son, it ain't my son's fault. Oh, I'm not suggesting He's just that... a boy. Davis is only on screen for a few minutes, but it was enough to get her her first Oscar nomination. Even if it was only going to be you know, mm -hmm. four or five minutes on screen. Absolutely. You would delve into that as if it was mm -hmm. the lead role. Absolutely. I say I would make a, a filet mignon out of a fried chicken dinner. <laughs> oh, no. This is so much fun. She had a lot of fried chicken rolls, parts that she fit first, she says, for her looks, and then for her talent. I'm not having this conversation. But I have a deep voice. I probably have the character look. I am a woman of a certain hue. Those roles, those kind of diverse roles weren't being written for anyone who looked like me. I need you to remember everything I told you, okay? 
Okay. You remember what I told you? You were kind. You were smart. She got her second Oscar nod for playing housemaid Abilene Clark in The Help. It's only recently Davis has been landing parts not so culturally trivial, like her Emmy-winning turn as Annalise Keating, the powerhouse of a defense attorney on ABC's How to Get Away with Murder. So guess what? Guess what? You go to jail, and I'm the shoddy lawyer who put you there. I had a headache. Stop lying. In the center of the narrative is an African-American woman who is 51 years old, who's not a size 2, who is not being placed in a box. Her determination to stand out started at age eight. I knew that Viola was like a tremendous actress. That's Viola's sister, Dolores. Just innately. Just like it was so natural, and we all would stop just to watch her do the scene. Dolores should know. She's now the drama teacher at their old high school in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Do they expect more out of you in some sense? Do they, are your expectations raised somehow? Because um, now yes, you've got to like... Yes, the expectations are raised. They think I'm going to make them a star. <laughs> <laughs> Central Falls is as proud of Davis as Davis is of it. Even though her upbringing here was about as gloomy as the weather the day we visited. The Davises were the only black family in town. Her dad got a job as a horse groomer at the nearby track. Money wasn't only tight... It was almost non-existent. I literally would dream about having food in the refrigerator and in the cupboards. That's it. Does it look the same? (laughs) It's much smaller than I remember. She took us back to the school cafeteria, which for years was her only source of nutrition. For most of my life, it was the only meal. Then knowing that when I went home, there was nothing there um, in terms of food. Is that hungry little girl still with you? Totally, completely. Her house, on the other hand, is long since gone. But the memories of the cold and the rats are as fresh as yesterday. The infestation was so unbelievable. And sometimes they would jump on top of us on the beds and then you could hear them eating our toys at night, just the crunching sound. Davis's yearbook is telling. She listed, when I get rich and famous, as her favorite saying. But that had nothing to do with growing up to be an award-winning actress. When you're poor, you are invisible. Every poor person will tell you, nobody sees you. So being famous was a part of me just wanting to be seen. Being seen as much as she's been seen lately can certainly be tiring. Oh, my goodness. But she feels an obligation to give back. And as such, she and her husband, actor Julius Tennant, started Juvie Productions the goal of broadening the kinds of roles offered to black artists. I just want different narratives for people of color, especially women of color. I just want something that's different. I don't want us to be put in the box. I want it to be kind of a redefinition of who we are. If I can even achieve that in a tiny way, I'll be good. I'll be good. But of all roles... Nothing, she says, has had greater impact than becoming a mother. One, two, three, four. The couple adopted their daughter Genesis five years ago. And Davis is there even for drumming lessons. You could be a bad actor 
And that's really hurtful, by the way, when people think you suck. <laughs> you could be, even if you're like a bad daughter, you know, you can maybe work through that, but you cannot be a bad mother. You just can't. With Genesis at her side, Davis accepted the honor of having a street named after her back in Central Falls. To those with dreams, sitting in that same school auditorium, where Viola Davis first took to the stage as a poor and hungry little girl, she had but a single message. There's got to be a voice deep within you that is untouched by definitions, and it is there that you become divinely who you are. And that is the one gift I plant in every young person in Central Falls, is that your dreams are absolutely much bigger and untouched by your circumstances. Just ahead. Dressed for success. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it rita braver now with a story about first impressions and a fashion tradition president kennedy and the first lady venture from the white house there is pat nixon in a handsome beaded dress on the world stage. Every camera that's available will be here photographing the inauguration and that first dance in the inaugural gown. Ann Stock should know. As a former White House social secretary. This is me with the president. And a former Bloomingdale's executive, she believes that inaugural gowns tell an important story. It's the history of who we are. It's our humanity and our history unfolding before us. And so the First Lady's Collection at the Museum of American History is one of the most popular exhibits in the whole Smithsonian. That's stunning. One of the earliest That's inaugural gowns here was worn in 1905 by Edith Roosevelt, wife of Theodore. This would have been a very corseted dress, a very formal dress, but she was a very formal person. And curator Lisa Kathleen Grady says, 60 years later, Lady Bird Johnson's gown was equally of its time. Can you imagine someone wearing fur trim today? Oh, not now. It's also said that uh, LBJ suggested that she put sable on the sleeves, that he, he told her, Bird, you need to dress it up some. Fashion icon Jacqueline Kennedy helped design her own ensemble. Now so fragile, it's usually kept in storage. It was such an elegant piece over that beautiful creamy chiffon gown. And these spectacular buttons. Aren't these amazing? If you remember Mamie Eisenhower's pink sparkly rhinestone gown, this is the purse that she carried with it. Wow. This is Bess Truman's inaugural gown. Why is it here in the closet? Because Bess didn't like it. It's definitely a very matronly look. 
Well, but she was a matronly lady. The dresses often have sentimental meaning. Hillary Clinton's gown was designed by an Arkansan. Laura Bush's by a Texan. Rosalind Carter recycled an ensemble she loved from her husband's gubernatorial inauguration. And sometimes there are surprising parallels. Here's Nancy Reagan's gown. There are echoes of her dress in Michelle Obama's dress, certainly. It's amazing. We have these two beautiful one-shouldered, white, beaded, glittering dresses, but with very different silhouettes. So what will former model Melania Trump wear? It's still a state secret, but... Oh, I absolutely think that it will be an American designer and it will be made in America. Do you have any particular advice for the Trumps as they go into this? The first thing is, have fun and enjoy it. And I'd say to everybody, wear comfortable shoes. <laughs>
released seven albums, performed for President Obama, and adoring crowds around the world. All right, who has homework? <laughs> Back home near Pittsburgh, life is a lot more ordinary. Multiple choice, I'll be good at the multiple above choice. Better be. That'd be so cool, though. If the roads she drives her two sisters and brother to school each day and attends a public high school where she admits stardom comes at a price. But you've been bullied. Yeah. I mean, everyone has in their own way. How? People just say things. What do they say? That I'm like a washout and that like my career was over and I'm a one-hit wonder and stuff like that. It's cool. <laughs> and they make fun of me for my sister. And she gets enough of that too. So I'd rather them make fun of me than them make fun of her. They make fun because Juliet Ivanko was born Jacob Ivanko and is transgender. How has this relationship changed? I mean, has it really changed between the two of you? Not really. No. We were always really close with each other. Like, even before, like, I transitioned and everything, um, I was still always her sister, if that makes sense. She knew. Yes. It's kind of hard not to, you know. Both sisters support LGBTQ yeah. rights. And when Jackie agreed to perform at the Trump-Pence inauguration, critics accused her of giving tacit approval to an incoming administration they believe will be intolerant of people like her sister. Juliet disagrees. The way I look at it is Jackie is singing for our country and it's an honor for her to be singing in front of so many people. So I feel like that's really where I look at it and that's where I'm going to leave it right now. Are you going to the inauguration? Um, I have prior engagements, so I will not be there. So this Friday, as America turns its eye toward the future, a little girl with a big voice will step up to the microphone and just sing her heart out. What do you hope to give the people in the audience? I hope to just kind of make everyone forget about rivals and politics for a second and just think about America and the pretty song that I'm singing. <laughs> I'm hoping that I can bring people together. Coming up, it all started here. One inaugural tradition had its start more than 200 years ago in the city that was our nation's first capital. Moraka takes us to the Lower Manhattan Church that's a witness to history. New York City, April 1789. The inaugural inaugural. J. 
General George Washington takes the oath of office as the first president of the United States and then comes here to St. Paul's Chapel. Do we know at all what George Washington prayed for that day? No, well, I do because I, I swear I can feel it here. So this is the entrance that George Washington used. The Reverend Dr. William Lupfer is the rector of Trinity Church, which includes St. Paul's. And I think he prayed for peace, for reconciliation. You can just feel it here. What else would he have done, right? No one prays for peace more than people who've been through war. Washington's visit is just one milestone in the history of this Episcopal chapel which recently celebrated its Sester Centennial. And of the sun. That's 250 years of worship, service, and what seem like miracles. In 1776, during the American Revolution, the Great Fire of New York destroyed one-third of the city. This is a fire bucket. But a bucket brigade um, saved St. Paul's. It was actually found up in the rafters of the church in 2009. Perhaps this was one of the buckets that was used during the Great Fire of 1776. Archivist Anne Petromo says it's unclear who started the fire. This is the sermon that was preached the day after the fire of 1776. But the chapel's British reverend had already made up his mind. He's pretty squarely laying the blame for this on the Patriots. He thinks that this was sort of a slash and burn thing because they were leaving and the British were coming in to occupy New York. Talk about a first draft of history. Right. Over the centuries, as downtown New York changed, St. Paul's played host to a diversity of congregations. And then in 2001, St. Paul's found itself right across the street from Cataclysm. But the chapel at Ground Zero, as it came to be known, survived with only a broken window. In the months after, it became a sanctuary for the grief-stricken and for weary Ground Zero recovery workers. So, Mo, this is our 9-11 Chapel of Remembrance. Vicar Phil Jackson says it's the heartwarming and sometimes horrific stories of service and sacrifice that now attract more than a million visitors to St. Paul's each year. One story that I heard is that the upper gallery was lined uh, with Timberland boots that had been donated by the company. Because if you came to work here to do a shift at, at Ground Zero, by the end of your shift, the soles would have melted. So they just threw them away, and then the next day would get another pair. And it's in these two catastrophes, 225 years apart, that Rector Lupfer believes St. Paul's finds its identity. I think both of those events were enormously disorienting. And to be right next to it, and survive and then minister to the aftermath has been sort of a horrible opportunity for us. A horrible opportunity. That's a great way of putting it. And I think it informs us and to be very intentional about bringing opposites together. 
and, and bringing disparate voices and emotions, passions, and feelings together. Which is why St. Paul's hosts a Jewish congregation and works with a neighboring Islamic community center. We're good friends with them, uh, sort of layperson to layperson. On Friday at St. John's in Washington, President-elect Trump plans to worship before his inauguration, a tradition that began here at the chapel that's been witness to both the best and worst moments of our history. Is it important that the incoming commander-in-chief worship on the day of his or her inauguration? Yes, and I think the commander-in-chief needs to be grounded, needs to start with their feet on the ground and with humility. And there's nothing more humbly than standing before God and, and admitting that. Much is riding on what Donald Trump says in his inaugural address on Friday. For some perspective, we turn to our friend, Wall Street Journal columnist Peggy Noonan, who herself has been a speechwriter to presidents. Each generation of Americans must define what it means to be an American. We are one nation and one people. This great nation will endure as it has endured. A presidential okay. inauguration marks an American glory, the peaceful transfer of power in the world's oldest continuing democracy. For new presidents, the address is a chance to show your stuff, to say, this I believe, this we believe, here's my intention, my hope. A new president wants to show he's equal to the moment. Sometimes they buckle under the rhetorical pressure, sometimes not. You can trace a lot of history reading inaugural addresses. Thomas Jefferson's second inaugural showed some considerable self-regard. He felt that in his first administration, he'd made a lot of wise decisions. But what takes you aback is his withering dislike of the media. He said, the artillery of the press has been leveled against us. He accused them of falsehood and said they deserved punishment. Abraham Lincoln, all acknowledged, produced the great inaugural masterpiece. It was his second address, and it was brief. After four years of war and endless talk, there was little new to be said, and he summed up the reasons for the war in a single sentence that was itself a masterpiece of compression. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish and the war came. And of course, his famous ending, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Reading Lincoln's second inaugural address is like hearing a friend think aloud, only your friend is a genius. For me, when I think of the first statements of a president, I think of two things. One is what Harry Truman said after he was sworn in in a thrown-together ceremony at the White House. It was April 1945. Franklin Roosevelt had died suddenly of a stroke. The next day, Truman came upon some reporters. He said, boys, if you ever pray, pray for me now. When they told me yesterday what had happened, I felt the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. 
Three years later, he would be elected president, inaugurated, and given an address. It was fine, but nothing close to the eloquence of that earlier day. Ask not. The words I remember most come from JFK's first and only inaugural address in January 1961. They are not the most famous words he spoke that day. It's the very last sentence of the speech. Let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Most all of us hearing that today would probably say yes and agreed, and how lovely. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.